0: All right, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. In the last hour, for those who may not have been here or who did not hear, we spent uh, some considerable time looking. Well, last week, we spent two hours about the different types of figurative language. We went through all the different types of figurative language. And I know in the study, especially if I'm following the study guide, we're supposed to be like it already in Jeremiah chapter 14. But I knew that I needed to try to move ahead. But we've we've missed, and there's there's just been situations where we haven't been able to be here, so um, we're kind of way behind. But because we spent two hours last week on the different types of figurative language, I didn't feel like. We could jump ahead because very early in Jeremiah, we're given all of this types of, of figurative language. So, in the last hour, we covered the following: we covered that Judah, Israel's, described as backsliders, uh, as a vine, as a fast camel, as a donkey in heat, as, an, uh, uh, as someone who needs a bath, and even though they they have the best soaps in the world, they cannot cleanse themselves, and a shame thief. A destroying lion, a a, a forgetful person. In contrast to women who don't forget very specific things, and, and which I, I, I stated it incorrectly in the podcast, but I'm glad we corrected it here. And then I figured someone would have emailed me and told me, but nobody did. All right. And then a harlot in chapter three, verses one through five. We covered all of that. We talked of the, the dangers of figurative language, how to handle it. I'm not going to go and review all of it. All, all of it, of course, is online. All right. So what we're going to do this morning. Now, there's a part of me that wanted to then just say, okay, we did a pretty good job. Let's just jump to four and do kind of a, a summary of chapter four. But we'll just try to, and this hour, all we're going to do is try to just finish up chapter three. Now, remember, this is never supposed to have been verse-by-verse verse exposition, but so far we've pretty much covered every verse. I'm trying not to do that. Just remember, with the book of Jeremiah, I want to just stress this. The book of Jeremiah is a convoluted, complicated mess. All right? There are a million reasons why it's a convoluted, complicated mess. Number one, we have the issue of the Septuagint and uh, the Latin Vulgate is radically different from the Masoretic text. We've already seen that uh, numerous times. I, I'll just give you one example, Jeremiah chapter 2, uh, verse 20, Jeremiah 2.20, where it says, For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, and thou saidest, I will not transgress. Stephen, give them an example of how radically different that verse is translated. Uh, long, long ago you broke your and off your bonds and, your and said, I will not serve <laughs> Completely different, right? One has God breaking the bands and the yokes and the other one has them breaking the bands and the yoke one has them saying we will not transgress against you and the other one saying we will not serve you <laughs> okay radically different and that's because we have the Septuagint and the Masoretic do not agree the Latin Vulgate with the, the King James I mean we can go on and on and on there's just oh and there's other uh, textual issues So the book is a convoluted, complicated mess just because of the Septuagint Masoretic thing going on, right? Another reason it's a convoluted and complicated mess is because it is not in chronological order. And another reason it's a complicated, convoluted mess is because of the never-ending use of figurative language, right? It's all over the place. Not only that, you have all kinds of different genres of literature. You have historical narrative mixed with what? Prophetic poetry, right? You've got all kinds of stuff at any point. So, like sometimes you'll listen to a sermon, like this next next section of Jeremiah is ancient Hebrew poetry, and someone else will be preaching it not as poetry. That that, that requires all kinds of different, like knowing how to handle it. So, be, so because it's so complicated, right? And I know people don't like when I say it's a convoluted, complicated mess, but it just is. I'm, I'm sorry, you can get, people can get offended all day. It just is. Here's what happens. There are times where verse-by-verse verse exposition is the absolute worst thing you can do, all right? And the reason why is because when you get into a book with all of these complications and all of these issues, what are you going to do if you're really doing verse-by-verse? You're going to address all of those issues, right? I mean, I mean, I, when churches pretend to do verse by verse and they're not verse by verse, that's, that drives me crazy. I can't stand when a church pretends to be verse by verse and they're not verse by verse because if they're really verse by verse, they'd be like, we're gonna be on this verse for six months because there's 5,000 problems with it, right? But they don't do that. And then like, we covered it verse, just stop it. You're not covering it verse by verse, okay? If you're covering it verse by verse, then you're going all in, Right? So you're, you're, you're doing a pretend verse by verse. But that's when verse by... Why does that become a problem? Because now you're so in the text that you can't see what? That you're, you're, you're so into the trees, you can't see the forest, right? So sometimes verse by verse is the worst thing to do because you're so far in there when it's all over and you say, what's the basic understanding of Jeremiah. You can do a verse-by-verse teaching, be in the book for six years, then ask the people the basic meaning, and guess what happens? No one will know. No one will know because they got, and, and this happened. Trust me, even in just a decent verse-by-verse, it can happen. We spent four years in the Gospel of John. I could ask some people some basic questions on the Gospel of John, and you would not even know that they spent four years in the Gospel of John. I would hope 1 Corinthians everyone would remember. Right? It's a letter to a church located in a city. And the city was influencing the... More than the church was influencing the... All right, good. And the only reason you remember that is I repeated it every single sermon. So so sometimes you have to... I'm just saying verse by verse has its negative, right? There there can be... and, And nobody wants it to be negative. But it's just the point is when you're getting... When you go verse by verse, you're getting into all of the weeds, right? You're getting into the complicated issues. Jeremiah, that's just a train wreck. You're not, you're going to get, we're going to be so far, like, here's the highway. We're, we went through the fence, ran over a couple of cows, went over a cliff, crashed at the bottom. The cliff fell on top. We got hit by an asteroid and the planet blew up, okay? And nobody knows where we were originally at. Okay, that, is that a graphical enough way to describe it? Okay, like, we're gone, so, what I'm trying to do is trying to make sure we can get the basic idea of what's going on when we're done. I, and I only got like you know, three months to try to accomplish this. So if, if you look at the study, the study guide, look, this is how many, are you ready for this? This is how many sessions they give us for the book of Jeremiah. Are you ready? They give us one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight nine, 10, 11, 12, 12 sessions in the book of Jeremiah. That is not cover. that's like giving us basic things, right? So I can't get, so I just want you to realize sometimes verse by verse is negative. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes people say they're going verse by verse. And if you believe that you're out of your mind, like I can't, like so many times I'll listen to a church like we're going verse by verse through the book. And, it'll, and you'll listen to the first sermon and like, that was not verse by verse. What was that? Like, like, because then you could ask anyone, oh, your church covered John chapter one, verses one through 12 in one sermon. And you feel like you did something because I can ask you. First of all, there's no way going verse by verse. You can cover John chapter one verses 1 through 12, and one sermon. You cannot. You're going to spend five hours with just verse 1, right? So that's all I'm trying, I'm trying to say. So there's a time it's good, and there's a time it's bad, and there's a time people are pretending. Jeremiah, it screams to not do what? Don't get so lost in the weeds that you miss everything else. How do I keep that from happening? I don't know, but I'm trying my best, Right? I've been trying to keep the bigger picture there. So we have to start in chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. What is the first thing you notice in chapter 3, verse 6? And I know this sounds like I'm going verse by verse after I just spent 20 minutes trying to explain the dangers of it. Okay? We have a time frame, but what else do we have? Come on, for anyone who's actually been reading the book, Oh the Lord said because we what what does this typically uh, demonstrate whenever we see that it's kind of a new message right right God now this is almost like he gave the previous message then the Lord said almost as if now it's a separate message and typically what do we see not only does it we get this idea then the Lord said sometimes he restates a timestamp a time frame now sometimes that timestamp may You're like, wait a minute. I thought we were at this period of time and and we could spend all of the time. Now again, that's getting into the weeds, right? We could go, well, wait a minute. What was the other timestamp? Well, when is this time? How much time? That's getting into the weeds of it, right? All I want you to just see is this seems to be where God has set up a new message, right? Then the Lord said unto me in the days of Josiah the king, right? Hast thou... Seen that which backsliding Israel hath done, she has gone up upon every mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. Now we're still using the figurative language. The figurative language, two different uh, using two different uh, figures of speech or different uh, kind of illustrative language. What are the two illustrations or two figurative language going on? Backsliding and harlot, right? And what is the simple? And who's he referencing here? Israel. So he's talking to Judah, and he wants them to remember what he wants them to go. Hey, Israel, right? They have been backsliding, and they've played the harlot. And when they played the harlot, meaning they were doing what? Going after other guys, idolatry. They're, they're guilty of spiritual adultery. Now, why does he want Judah to look to Israel? He's like, have you not seen? Have you not seen? Now, think about this, Israel, all of Israel, Israel as the kingdom has been gone for about a hundred years, I think originally we said 300, but 300 was when the kingdom split. It's about a hundred when they went into captivity to Assyria. So he's like, hey, have you not seen it? It's like this, right? It's like one of your kids does something, right? They go outside, they break something, they do something, and they get in serious trouble, Right? All of the kids have seen them get in trouble. Everyone saw it. They saw that what they did turned out to be bad, and they got punished for it. And you're like, okay, all right, now I'm going to go back in. I'm tired of messing with the kids. And all of a sudden you hear something, and you're like, what is going on? You go outside, and you find kid number two doing the exact same thing, and you're like, have you not seen have you not understood? What, what is your problem? But guess what? It, it, no matter how, how much you say. But guess what? The same thing happens to us spiritually, right? Have we not seen? Don't we? Should we not understand? Should we not see and understand based off what has happened? Well, they should have seen. And look at what he says. It goes uh, goes on to say here. Um, and, and look at verse 7. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn thou unto me, but she returned not. In other words, Judah has had a front row seat to Israel's sin and punishment and refusal to return. They've had a front row seat to all of it. And then what does God say to Judah? What does he refer to Judah as? Her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Treacherous sister. The the king uh, the NIV says unfaithful sister. The sister saw it, and the sister did what? The exact same thing. In fact, what does the next verse say? Verse eight, and I and I saw. When for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, please note, this is spiritual adultery, spiritual adultery, spiritual adultery. This is the adultery nobody gets in trouble with in church. This is the adultery that nobody says, nobody really says anything about it. Like, have you ever seen anyone church disciplined for spiritual adultery? Okay, the answer is no. Because if you did, who would be church disciplined? Everybody, so everybody is a spiritual adulterer. What does it mean to be a spiritual adulterer? You are just, well, in a literal, very literal sense, obviously idolatry of any kind, right? Right? Anytime where you're like, hey God, I know you want me to do this and this and this, and I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go, in a sense, sleep with this. I'm going to go chase this. I'm going to be unfaithful to you. And well we do that all the time and thought word desire feeling action internally externally we are all guilty now look what happens here all right you need to pay close attention here right i talked about this last night in, in a podcast because man This thing's getting complicated as garbage here, okay? All right, here we go. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Stop right here. Okay. This creates some serious problems, all right? I don't want to repeat the entire podcast, but if I have to repeat the entire podcast, it's okay. As long as we finish this chapter, I'm okay with it, all right? Now, does everybody understand immediately what problems this begins to cause? All right. So first, let's do this. I talked about this in the first hour. Whenever figurative language is being utilized in the Bible, I need everyone to pay attention to this. You always have to be extremely careful. Because what happens is you can take figurative language and you can start running with the figurative language and you can lead, run yourself right into either heresy or just all kinds of confusion. Figurative language is not always designed to make everything fit perfectly. It's simply to do what? To illustrate a general point, right? Here's the general point. It's not trying to create all of this. For example, backsliding. It's only, basically mentioned only in the book of Jeremiah and maybe two other places, Hosea and I think Isaiah maybe, all right? Almost all the references are in the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah is referencing Judah and Israel as backsliders, right? You've backslidden, you've gone back to, to idolatry. It's not meant to be a soteriological argument on salvation, but what do we do with backsliding? Well, how far can someone backslide and still be a Christian. How far can someone backslide. Until we prove. that? Where in the Bible are you even finding that discussion? Backsliding is not even mentioned in the New Testament. So you're taking an Old Testament figurative language. And then going around. And then try to have some major argument. About the eternal security of the believer. Or when someone is saved or not saved. Jeremiah is not trying to do that. Jeremiah is using a language to say you have fallen back into that which you supposedly moved away from. He's not making an argument about, oh, this proves you're not saved. No. And then we take it and then turn it into something we're not. I don't understand why church members don't catch on to that. You should say, well, wait a minute. Is the context in Jeremiah a soteriological argument on the eternal security of the believer? It's the same thing people do in Hebrews. Hebrews. Do we have those warnings in Hebrews? And then we take it and say, oh, this means you can lose your salvation. No, it mean, this proves that you're not saved. And then you go, wait a minute, Hebrews was written to Jews to warn them of the coming destruction of the temple in 70 AD. They were going to lose their religion. So it's a warning to them. If you go back to Judaism, what are you going to have? Nothing. No sacrifice. No temple no priest don't go back to Judaism, and then we've taken it and say wait 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 if you do this then you can never be saved because there's no more sacrifice for sin what are you talking about it's about them not having a sacrifice that actual sacrificial system is going to be gone i don't understand how we can't figure that kind of stuff out it's it's reading comprehension 101 and we just lose our minds so we got to be really careful here because God just said he, committed, he, he filed for divorce. So either we have to understand God, our God, is a divorced God. His marriage didn't work out. Then, some people, because they say God divorced Israel, they believe then that means what? This deals now with eschatology. That God has done with Israel. So he not only did he get rid of her, then what did he do? He got remarried. Because they say God is done with Israel. Now all of those promises that was given to that wife was taken from her and given to a new wife. And who's the new wife? The church. The church. So now you're like, so God not only got divorced, he got remarried. Well, oh, yeah. Now, you should then get immediately worried. Well, if he divorced the first woman, okay? And because she was unfaithful, I don't know if you, I, I know all of you guys, and you're part of the church. Well, he's going to divorce you, right? Like, I would be I would be a little concerned. And not only does, then it's like, well, wait a minute. He got divorced, and then he brought, if he brought Israel back, wait, Deuteronomy 24 says you can't do that. Okay, now now we got a possible contradiction. We got all kinds of, and then if you say, well, wait a minute, he, he divorced Israel but brought her back, but then he got the church. Then does he have two wives? Wait, what sister? Oh yeah, we, yeah, we got all kinds of issues going on. Like like you see how far you can take this, you end up with all kinds of problems. Do you not? Right? Do you understand? So we got to be very careful how we understand it. What does he say? He has used a figurative language to describe what? The relationship between Israel and God as one of a husband and wife. It's figurative. And now he's saying you have committed adultery spiritually. Spiritually. And when he says, I've given you a decree of divorcement, or how does it exactly read in the King James? It's uh, uh, Jeremiah chapter three, uh, verse eight. I put her away and given her a bill of divorce. What does he mean he put her away? Remember, it's just figurative language. He's referring to? The captivity, the Assyrian captivity. I, I put her away, the Assyrian captivity. And Judah, in a sense, is going to be put away, the treacherous sister, to Babylonian captivity, right? That, so we got to be careful how we understand the divorce part. I'll, I'll just give you, I'll give you one example just really quick of this. This is a, in a hermeneutics discussion board where they get into some serious hermeneutical issues, right? And here's here's an example. Someone asked the question one year, seven months ago, right? Did God in Jeremiah contradict Deuteronomy 24 by letting Israel return to him? Now, go to Deuteronomy 24 really quick, just so that you see this. But see, this is what happens when you get into the figurative language. You've got to be careful how far you take it. You're going to have all kinds of weird things going like, wait, God, how many wives does God have? Wait, do we have a, hey, you know, wait, I got a divorce. I feel horrible. Well, don't feel horrible. God got a divorce too. Like, I mean, like, what do we, how far do we take this, right? Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse one. All right, everybody ready? Everybody there? Deuteronomy 24, one, I'll wait till everybody's there. Gotta to try to go quick and see if we can finish this. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find that he that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be. Uh, and when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and giveth it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, an inheritance. You can't take her back. All right? Now, go to Jeremiah chapter 3 again. Now, let's read all of this. All right? Jeremiah chapter 3. Now, look at this. Verse 8. And I saw... For all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I have put her away, given her a bill of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass, through the lightness of her whoredom, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. And yet, for also her heart, for also her treacherous sister Judah, Hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feigned, faintly saith the Lord. And the Lord said unto me, The backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. Verse 12 Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, thou backslidden Israel. Now, Do you see why this, in this hermeneutical discussion board, why they're having this question? Well, wait a minute. When you give them a certificate of divorce, what can they not do? Can't take them back. Because by taking back is an abomination and it corrupts the entire land. So why would God then say, you can come back? She can't come back. So how do we understand this? Well, you can read all of the arguments, and there's pages, right? If you want to go into all of that, because, and, and of course, churches always try to pretend things are so simple when nothing is ever simple, okay? Because you got to get your sermon done in 30 minutes and don't go too deep because nobody wants a deep sermon. But the reality is, this, this creates some problems. So how do we understand it? Well, first and foremost, we've got to be very careful, very careful not to take figurative language to an absurd level, Right? That's for, but there could be something here that could be somewhat interesting. Because if you're not supposed to take them back, that would place Israel in what kind of a position? A helpless and hopeless situation. And let's remind ourselves, the law of God, What does it put everyone? In a helpless and hopeless situation. Can we obey the law? Even as Christian, can we obey the law? No, nobody can obey the law, period, right? Therefore, we're all in a state of hopelessness, helplessness. We're, We're completely condemned. And what this demonstrates is where the law condemns, God's grace and mercy forgives and abounds. So even though they're in a hopeless, helpless situation where they're not to be taken back, what does God do right here? He calls them back. Go and proclaim these words and say, return thou back, sudden Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. That no matter how helpless or hopeless their situation is, God will bring them back. Now, a lot of people don't believe that, right? A lot of people believe God is just done with Israel. Now, if God is just done with Israel, then we've got, now some may even try to quote Deuteronomy 24 to prove it. But right here, he calls them back. Now, others will say he calls them back, but they don't come back. Therefore, God was done with them, and the divorce is final. So then he replaced them with the church. The only problem with that would be, what would be a couple of issues I I would have? Number one, well, yeah, I mean, like, what what assurance then do I have? Right? They say, "Well, God, God did it for them, but He won't do it for us." Based off what? Why? Well, because we're so much better than them. And to me, and it also destroys. Well, wait, didn't God elect them? Didn't God choose them? So that would call into question God's election and choosing. It would call into it would call into question everything about God. Right? It would be it would be majorly problematic. And not only would it be majorly problematic, it would be it would make me very tro- worried, and not only that. Well, well, not like, yeah, you go into the whole thing about God not lying. But to me, the major issue is it destroys the concept of God's mercy and grace. They, they, they don't deserve to be brought back. But then in Romans 11, what do we have? Well, go find it. Just go find it. We can just quote directly. Yeah, we, let's just look at it really quick. It only takes a couple of seconds. Everyone should be able to find it. Okay? Okay, Romans chapter 11. Yeah. yeah, Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. Now, what people is he referring to? You say, well, that's the church. No, it's not the church, because he immediately goes, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not, what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee uh, to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then, Israel? hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Israel obtains this by why? Election. God elected them. Verse eight, according as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber. Yes, they they should not see and ears that they should not hear unto this day. They were blinded. God did keep them from the truth. And David said, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back away. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to... Provoke them to jealousy. Now immediately we know this is clearly not referencing the church. Clearly this is Israel. Not, this is not the church. You can't make this the church. The, this is not the church falling. This is Israel. The nation fell. Why didn't they fall? So the Gentiles could be brought in. And why were the Gentiles brought in? Broken, broken not the church to jealousy. The nation to jealousy. Right? Like, I I don't even know why this is complicated, right? Verse 12, Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, in so much as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and save some of them. What is he hoping? Hey, I'm hoping that they'll be so provoked to jealousy, that Israel will do what? Believe the gospel. Now look what happens. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruits be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakers, partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou will say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell. So now that, that first part, verse 21, should scare you to death, right? Make you think, well, wait a minute, we can be cast off. you're like, we're in trouble. We're in bad trouble. And then what does he say? Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity but towards thee, goodness. If thou continue his goodness, otherwise thou shalt also be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still, in unbelief shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. The blindness impart to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. In other words, there is a time period for their blindness. What is the time period? to the fullness of the Gentiles come in, right? There's a specific, does it say forever? No, it seems to say four times. Is it not drawing a distinction between Israel and anybody else? Okay, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, they shall come out of Sion, the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them. who's them? Israel. Israel, and then I shall take away their sins. There's no way to get around this. Okay, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of these things come from Jeremiah as well, right? So I want you to just see, did God divorce them? Yeah, I mean, he did, he says, I, I divorced I put them away. But what's going to happen? He's bringing them back back which we're going to see here in just a minute how this is going to play out i know this causes all kinds of confusions but let me just say if god is completely done with israel and replaced it with the church then all the promises to israel were not really promises right i mean that's just it becomes a major problem you, I, I the only thing i know to do even if i'm going to make sense of the bible in any way shape or form is that god made promises to israel and those and we know many of those promises were not we're not fulfilled. We know that. I mean we all know that we're not fulfilled. And so either you say you lost it and give it to the church. That seems really messed up, right? Because we get the promises and not the curses, which makes no sense. Not only that, well, then how can we be, uh, like, if you take some of that language in Romans, you would be scared that word could be white, Cut off. Now, I should be worried about being cut off, but God's mercy is great enough that even though he cut off Israel, he will ultimately bring them back. And so I know that no matter how far I may sin, God will save me because of his mercy and grace. Now, go back to Jeremiah chapter three. I think personally that what you should do with Deuteronomy 24 is say absolutely right. God should not be able to bring them back. They're absolutely condemned. But God's grace is what? Greater than our sin. Agreed? All right. Okay, and then uh, we, we, read all, we read all the way down to verse 11, did we not? And the Lord said unto me, The backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. Then look at verse 12. Right, Jeremiah 3.12. I know we could spend a lot more time on that, but you get the basic idea. So the basic idea is this. God divorced Israel. According to the law, he should not be able to bring her back, right? But he calls her to come back, and we know ultimately he will bring her back, right? Praise God, yes? Because the law condemns, God is greater than the condemnation of the law. His His mercy is greater than the condemnation of the law. Judah was just as guilty and justice. in fact, And it almost treats them as more treacherous. And the reason they're more treacherous is because they saw all of this and yet continued to be unfaithful. They did not learn from it, right? So then God calls them back. Verse 12, we saw that, yes. Then verse 13, Only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, and hast scattered the ways to the strangers under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you, one of a city, and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Please note, even though he said he gave her a bill of divorcement, what does he say here? Yeah, I'm your husband. I'm married to you. Wait a minute, I thought he got, got rid of her. Do you not find that Interesting. The putting her away was simply a temporary putting away. It was just for her to go into captivity. But God still sees himself as married. Like, like, that, that, and you say, people go, well, that's a contradiction because you're taking the figurative language too far. He just wants them to see, hey, our relationship is one as a married couple. You cheated on me. I sent you to captivity. But then he still refers to him as? I am married. And what does he say he's going to do? I will take one of a city, two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. There's going to be some return. Now, what return is this referring to? Well, it doesn't seem to make sense to the Assyrians because they never really come back. They don't really come back as a kingdom. Judah, it kind of refers to them, but let's, let's see what's going to happen when they return. What's going to happen when they return? Verse 15, and I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Okay, so they're going to come back and now they're going to have people who's going to teach them. Now, this is where Matthew Henry and all millennialists and lots of reformed people will immediately say, oh, see, this is a reference to... The church, he stopped talking about Israel. Now that becomes majorly complicated, right? Because did Israel ever go into Assyrian captivity? Or did the church go into Assyrian captivity? Like if he's going to bring us back, then we would have to have, and then they say, well, we were in captivity to sin. Then he brought us back from sin. Then it all becomes really convoluted, but continue. What's the next verse? And it shall come to pass when you be multiplied and increased, Now, please know, immediately, that tells me, See, when it uses the word land, this is where the all-millennial list and everybody starts losing me. Because now, Israel doesn't mean Israel. Land doesn't mean land. Zion, like, everything starts changing its meaning. So, in Reformed churches that do this, I just start losing it because I'm like, well, then how do I, in this book already hard enough to interpret so now I got to go well Israel could actually be the church. Judah could actually be the church. Land could actually not be land. So then what what is what, right? Then okay, but what happens? In those days, seemingly to infer future time saith the Lord, they shall say no more the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done anymore. Now, this is interesting, right? What does this seem to be implying? That they're going to come back, but something's going to be different, right? Now, this is crazy, because when we come back from Judah captivity, what do they build? The temple that they have, and they bring the stuff back in, right? Okay, that, that doesn't seem to apply there, right? So then others say, Well, see, this is clearly the church, right? Because the church, do we look for the ark? No, so they're not. Now, some will say, Well, wait a minute. Some will say, Well, th- this has got to be referencing Israel when they come into the millennial kingdom. But then there's other passages that seem to be to imply what will be in the millennial kingdom. The temple. But then we say, well, does, it, does it say the ark's gonna be there? Because if we say, if God is sitting there in Jerusalem, then he's the ark. Right? But then others are like, no, we gotta rebuild because you know there's those organizations who are trying to rebuild the temple and they wanna, you know, they keep claiming they, they're gonna set up. Sac- Some believe the sacrificial system will be there. But all I'm saying is clearly this, this causes that this return, something's gonna be radically different about this return. Right? Agreed? Okay, now what else does he say? At that time, once again, do you see that language? They shall call, they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered unto it. Whoa, well, wait a minute. That does not sound like them coming out of Babylonian captivity. Definitely is not a reference to the northern kingdom. When 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 did all the nations come flying into Jerusalem to, because it's the throne of God? That sounds like something that has not occurred. Now some will say, see, that's the church. The church now is the throne of God, and all the nations come to the church. Well, then, but then at the same time we say well, we're being persecuted. But why would we be persecuted if all the nations are now coming to hear the word? Of, like, and they say, well, not all nations, people from all different. And then you it just starts like. You can go all day trying to figure this stuff out, but the seemingly, look, put it this way. If it's a reference to the church, this is of no comfort to them. What's the hope here? Listen, national Israel, national Judah, you, and I'm just gonna be blunt, you're whores. You cheated on me. I'll put you away. Come back to me. And then this is the promise of what's going to happen. If that turns to the church, then this is not a promise to them, is it? So then why give the message to them? It's it's thousands of years away from, like, like, what are you even doing, right? It, It doesn't seem to make any sense to me. But hang on, let's continue. Right, hang on. Um, so they're going to come All the nations are going to come They're going to be gathered unto it To the name of the Lord Now play The nations are going to be gathered Unto the throne of the Lord To, to Jerusalem And they're going to be To the name of the Lord To Jerusalem Neither shall they walk anymore After the imaginations Of their evil heart Now right there That doesn't even describe the church That is something That has never happened in history it's not happened to Judah, didn't happen to Israel, it has never happened to us. We, if you, anyone claims that, no, no, in the church, we don't walk after the imaginations, that, that, is, that is total trash. We all do. Okay, y'all should all say amen. Okay, we all do, all right? I, y'all look at me like, you do, not we. No, we all do, okay? All right, anybody walk, uh, uh, did anybody walk after the imaginations of their evil heart this week? Okay, Bobby said no. So Bobby's the only one who's figured it out. Okay, Bobby will be writing a book and selling a DVD set coming up next month to tell us all how to no longer walk after the imaginations of our evil heart. You, should, you may have to tithe 20% of all the money you make because everyone's going to buy that. We yeah, well, we'll get the streaming like out. Okay, all right. In those days, what's, what do we have again? The house of Judah. Okay, well, but in those days, it's future. The, future. the house of Judah... Now, stop right there. Come on, guys. Come on. Has that ever happened? No. But guess what? Again, listen. Don't take my word for it. I've told everyone in this church to do it a million times. Buy you a Matthew Henry commentary, which I was always blown away why independent fundamental Baptists always say it, get a Matthew Henry commentary. Like, as soon as I read a Matthew Henry commentary, I looked at them like, had anyone actually read the thing? Okay, like why? It's... It's all millennial for crying out because fundamentalist Baptists were dispensational, right? And it's like, get you a good Matthew Henry commentary. What are you smoking? Like, maybe you should read the books you recommend, right? Like, wouldn't that be good? But everyone should get a Matthew Henry commentary because I've done, I've done it here. I've had people look it up in the middle of service because you'll see this all be church, 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 church. Everything's the church. Everything's the church. Everything's the church. Everything's the church. And I'm telling you, I don't know how you can read the book of Jeremiah and do that. Because now, guess what would happen? Land's not land. Jerusalem is not Jerusalem. And then guess what else would be happening here? House of Judah and house of Israel is not the house of Judah and house of Israel. It is the church. And they shall come together out of the land (laughs) Of the north to the land that I have given for an inheritance unto. Now, come on, that can't be the church. <laughs> it can't. There's no rational person who can read this and say it's the church. Like, you have to violate. It. Even figurative, it, does, it doesn't even make any sense because it doesn't even describe the church. So, what? Were there two churches then that we come together as one church? Oh, no, Israel's gonna come together within the church. And they're going to come out of the land. That's just the whole thing just starts falling apart. Now what happens next? But I said, how shall I put thee among the children and give thee a pleasant land, a goodly heritage of the host of nations? And I said, thou shalt call me my father and shall not turn away from me. Surely, uh, as a wife treacherously departed from her husband, So have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. He keeps going back between the north and the south, right? The north and the south. And both of them have done what? Been unfaithful. But, and again, I want to make sure you understand this. Jeremiah is not going to Judah or speaking to the people in the north, offering some promise that they would not even comprehend or understand. What is the promise here? As bad as you people have been, the day is coming that you're going to come back to me and you're going to come out of the land and you're going to get the land which I promised. That, that None of that makes any sense for the church. And then we've got 21 to 25. Right? A voice was heard upon the high places, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way And they have forgotten the Lord their God. How does the NIV translate verse 21? Okay, now this seems to imply there's kind of come a time of what? National weeping, a national repentance, Right? A national repentance. Now we can say, has that ever happened? I don't think it's ever happened. Now this seems to go back to the Romans 11 idea that all Israel will be saved. That that seems the only way I can get this. Return ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Behold, we come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills. And from the multitudes of mountains, truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Please note, verse 23, this is very important. We already talked about earlier the figurative of speech, that they were so sinful that they could not wash themselves even if they had the best soaps. And then we kind of talked about literally how bad their situation was. Because according to Deuteronomy, if God puts you away or or if a divorce occurs, you cannot come back. But God is saying, hey, I'm going to take care. I'm going to bring you back. There's going to be salvation. And what does he tell them here? How, what, what's vain for them to do? To look for salvation where? From the hills. From the hills. What's another, what, 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 that's another way of understanding that. Again, a little bit of figurative language, but we can understand this. Don't look to any other nation. And where do they keep looking? Where do they look to? They look to Assyria and Egypt. Remember we talked about that earlier in Jeremiah 2? Right? Don't look to the nation. Why? Why? Can the nation, look, here's the, listen to me, listen to me, this is very important. They look to the nations to solve the problem that did not need to be the focus that they were looking, for the solution they were looking for. What could the nations help them with? National issues, civil issues, right? Maybe finances, maybe military protection, all of fleshly stuff, right? But what can those nations not help them with? They need to be cleansed from their sin. They need to be forgiven. They need to be restored. So they should stop looking to the, can those nations help them with their divorce? No. Where do they need to turn to? God. Isn't that not the point here? Right? So many, this, this is a, this is to me, the church is, especially in 2023, we want to look and try to fix all the world's problems by fleshly means. We need to have, we don't need to fix those problems. We need to fix the spiritual problem, right? And the spiritual problem is what we need to focus on, all right? And then, um, what verse was that? Verse 23, for shame hath devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down and our shame and our confusion covereth us for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth, even unto the day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. All right, let's just end with some very quick things. First and foremost, this is a reminder of how hopeless and helpless all are because we've all committed adultery against God. We all deserve to be divorced. We all to be thrown away and we should all see how hopeless and helpless we are. We have to see that. Right? The main thing is Israel constantly did not see their sin. Judah did not see their sin. We have a tendency not to see our sin. We have to see ourselves as people who are unfaithful. We are we are spiritual adulterers. God should throw us out of the house give us a, a, you know, throw our bags at us, tell us to never come back, all right? That's what should happen, right? But we should see, we have to see how guilty we are, and we have a hard time seeing that. we got to see how guilty we are, and secondly, we've got to turn to God for that help because no one else is going to help us, right? You can't find some loophole in the law, right? Say, well, no, 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 no. I got to divorce God, but guess what? I think it's your fault. God, I think, I think no, you cheated on me, God. No, it's just for us to accept that God is our only hope. Not a loophole, not another nation, not a bath with the best soaps. God is our only hope. And, God, and then number three, I'll just quickly, we have to re- realize, and, and, and we should cherish this, God is greater than our sin. And to me, this is just me. Now, I know I'm, all the Reformed people are gonna, Tell me I'm not reformed now and that I've been thrown out of the reform camp, but that's okay. I've been reformed. I've been thrown out of every camp. So throw me out of the camp. I don't really care about camps, but I know this. To me, the most comfort in the book of Jeremiah is this. Israel and Judah sinned against him a million different ways and God called them back and promises that they're gonna be brought back into the land and every single promise he gave them He's going to fulfill it. Not because they deserve it. Because of God's grace and mercy. That should make you happy. Because that's, a, that's a something we should watch. If God's so gracious and merciful to them, then he can be that gracious and merciful to me. Because I deserve... I don't even deserve what God gave Israel. I deserve, I deserve all their, everyone, the church in reform world, we want to take all the promises they gave them. We deserve all the curses. We deserve all the judgment. We should be, it should make you feel like, whew, if God did not throw out Israel and he's going to save them and restore them to the land and fulfill those promises, man, I can trust his mercy and grace. But if he threw them out, I'm sorry. Well, I'm in trouble. Like, why are you so confident God would forgive you? Because even in uh, Romans, it's almost a threat there a couple of times about, hey, God can cut you off. Well, I deserve to be cut off. But I know that even if God, quote unquote, was to cut me off, what can I hope in? That he would restore me because he restores Israel and all Israel will be saved. I think, I, I, I don't... To throw that out, I know in eschatology it may be cool, We can say, well, see, I'm not in the left-behind camp, I'm not in the dispensational camp, and I'm more spiritual and more godly, and I'm smarter than you. But I think all you're doing is destroying the whole message of God's salvation and grace, and destroying even, what what does even election mean? He elected them, and then he's done with them? Then election is not even a a sure thing. The point is, is, in Christ, our salvation is not based off what we do. It's based off what God does, as, as he says in Romans. If it's by works, then it's not by grace. And if it's by grace, then it's not by works. God saved us because of what Christ did. That We should find hope in that chapter. We, we should be scared to death that they couldn't see how bad they were. And we sometimes don't see how bad we are. And they do look for help in the wrong places as we sometimes look for help in the wrong places. But man, we should be glad of how the mercy of God is shown there. Because that's a, that's a good message for them, right? Hey guys, you're in captivity, you're a mess. But the time's coming that God's gonna fix it. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. We thank you for the powerful words of Jeremiah. I pray we would give them much thought and consideration. And uh convict us greatly, and we ask this in Jesus' name, and God's people said.